0: Hello and welcome to Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. This episode is a bit unique, different from most of our previous episodes, so let me set the stage for you. Last October, I was invited to Boston to give a talk at an information security conference called Deep 2017. The topic I chose for the talk was a story that took place some 15 years ago in Israel, a story that I feel deserves to be made into a movie one day has all the ingredients of a box office hit. A thrillers novelist who becomes a character in one of his own plots, check. Revenge and blind hatred, check. Former cops turn rogue, check. Industrial espionage in top tier businesses, check, check, double check. As a side note, I had the honor, really an amazing honor, to interview on stage in the same event, none other than Steven Wozniak, The Woz. Sadly, I couldn't tape this interview, but just so you know, Waz did write at least two computer viruses for the Apple II back in the day. When he understood the devastating potential of those programs, he says, he deleted them immediately and destroyed the source codes. He's an amazingly interesting guy. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Ran Levy is a master storyteller. You heard him yesterday speaking with Waz, and as we promised, he's going to tell you a story of his own today. He would probably bet anyone in this room that the story he's about to tell will both educate and delight you. And I, for one, believe him, because like I told you yesterday, Ran is Israel's most popular podcaster. Welcome, Ran. Hi, good morning. Yes, so uh, I also host a podcast called Malicious Life about the past, present and future of security, information security, if you like. So the story, which I'm about to tell you, takes place in the early 2000s. Now the early 2000s were, was an interesting time for information security. It was a transitional period of malware between uh, being a toy developed by teenagers, amateurs, to real tools used by cybercriminals. And the the story which I'm about to tell you, a true story out of Israel, takes time in this early period, and it is a kind of an example of the power of malware, that early transition practical power of malware. And it's also a kind of a cautionary tale about the power of malware to tempt and corrupt us. So Amnon Jacont, this guy, is an Israeli author, mostly of thrillers. He had uh, quite a few bestsellers in Israel. You can call him the Israeli John Grisham, if you like. And around August of 2004, Amnon started noticing a very strange phenomenon. Emails in his inbox were disappearing and other emails were marked as read when he didn't, time, didn't have the opportunity to open and read them. So at first he figured that might be a technical problem and he approached ISP and they told him there's nothing wrong. And then the same phenomena started occurring in other emails that he used, inboxes. He had an email inbox in Tel Aviv University where he was studying for a PhD and he had a Hotmail account and both of those emails started showing the same phenomena. So he immediately realized that these being three different email accounts, that can't be a coincidence, that someone was hacking into his emails. So he immediately changed all the passwords and he figured that that would be the end of it. But two, three days later, the same phenomena repeated itself again. So he went to the IT department of the Tel Aviv University. He went to his ISP again. They couldn't help him. So he just stopped using those emails. Roughly the same time, someone started a very vicious smear campaign, slanderous campaign against him on the Internet. Some websites, such as the Israeli uh, Wikipedia, started showing information, slanderous information, as if he was uh, evading military service, as if he was not paying his parking tickets. Some of these accusations were followed with documents, sensitive private documents, taken from his computer. And he noticed that his colleagues at the Tel Aviv University were evading him for some reason. So he asked around, and he discovered to his horror that somebody sent an email in his name admitting, quote unquote, that he plagiarized academic papers of his colleagues. And it was very difficult for him. And he felt as if he was kind of trapped inside one of the plots of his own books, being now the main character. And the culmination of that smear campaign was that the same mysterious attacker tried to destroy the success of his latest book. He had a book just published, and someone posted many, many reviews, bad reviews about the book over the internet and posted spoilers, plot spoilers, and that campaign really destroyed the sales of the book. It sold only a few hundred copies, where Amnon usually sold tens of thousands of copies. But that's where our mysterious attacker made a critical mistake. Amnon noticed that one of the reviewers who posted bad reviews on him identified himself. The nickname was the doll Yemima. Now, it's kind of a silly name taken out of an Israeli children's song, but Amnon became a bit suspicious because that was also his password for his Hotmail account. And it was based on a kind of a private joke only his closest friends and family knew about. So he became suspicious. And another reviewer signed his nickname as the Twin Falafels. Now, this is quite a famous restaurant in Israel. And Amnon knew someone who lived quite near that specific restaurant in Israel, and that someone had a very good reason to hate him. This is... Uh, Michael Aifati. He was born in 1964. According to his biography and his blog, he was quite a talented kid. He learned English by the age of five. He learned to play piano uh, and even composed music. He served in an elite unit in the Israeli military. And when personal computers appeared in the 1980s, he learned to program and developed software for music composition. Michael's wife, Ruth, is also quite an impressive resume. She graduated from high school at the age of 16. She was an officer in the military. She was an HR manager for a big Israeli high-tech company. That's where she met Michael. And she didn't go to college, but she's a self-learning person, so she acquired quite a lot of knowledge about computers on her own. Now Michael's first wife, before Ruth, was Amnon Jacon's daughter. And that marriage ended with a very ugly divorce, with a lot of legal battles around the custody of the children. And Amnon was very intimately involved in these legal proceedings, which ended with Michael and his new wife having to flee Israel and live in Germany. So they had a very, very good reason to hate him. That's why he was suspicious of them. But he still didn't have any idea how they were doing whatever it is that, was, that they were doing. So anyway, he approached Michael's mother and asked, them, asked her to relay the message to the couple in Germany to stop doing it, whatever they were doing. And when the attacks didn't stop, he approached the police. He went to the police station to file a formal complaint. But he had little hope for this route of, cause, this route of action because the officer who took the complaint, this is back in the early 2000s, mind you, didn't have any idea what he was talking about. How can somebody break into a computer remotely? That guy, but didn't understand even what this is all about. And then, three months later, he woke up one morning, went to his mailbox, his physical mailbox, and and found a CD in the mailbox. Yeah, we used to have those before, if you remember. And with that CD came a note. And that note read, following our conversation, here's the manuscript. Thank you, Alex. Now, Amnon was corresponding with an aspiring author named Alex. But there was something about the CD kind of like appearing out of nowhere in his mailbox without any prior notification that kind of raised his suspicions. Because by that point Amnon was paranoid. He didn't trust anyone. Didn't, he was completely paranoid. So he took the CD as is and brought it to the police station. And that same evening, he got a phone call from the police. And the police officer told him, we found something on that CD. Don't open to your computer and don't talk to reporters, which was very, very strange for Amnon. So what did they found on the CD? I want to take you a bit back in time to the late 1990s. And Mikhail Efrati was then the VP of business development of Israeli company. When he had an idea, he said, Every once in a while, I would walk among my employees to see what everyone was doing. I thought it would be nice to see on my computer screen, mini screens with screenshots of an employee's computer. This would allow me to manage the employees remotely, even if they were working from home or abroad. I don't know if I wanted a boss to see exactly what I was doing every minute, but that was his idea. and That idea kind of matured in the early 2000s into a software that uh, Michael developed, which was a monitoring software. Uh, It it was called TargetEye. And it was quite sophisticated for the time. You could, if it was installed on a computer, you could see whatever was on the screen. You can keylog things. You can record sounds via the computer's microphone. You can actually take over the computer and move the mouse and press keyboard as if it was right in front of the monitor. It wasn't the very first monitoring software, of course, but it was one of the first, and it was certainly one of the most advanced for its time. So, now, having that new software was very exciting for Michael and his wife Ruth in Germany. So, they approached some of Israel's leading security, biggest security organizations, the police, the Mossad, the IRS. There was a joke there, you missed that. And uh, they tried to sell them that, that new software, but you know, these big bureaucratic organizations. Sales talks take time, and Michael and Ruth were kind of pressed for money. So they uh, approach a different market, the market of private investigators. And private investigators, they immediately understood the potential of the targetized software in one of the most lucrative niches of their work, which is industrial espionage. So what Michael and Ruth did was they had the small, quote unquote, problem that in order for somebody to be spied on as part of the industrial, industrial espionage, you have to transform the software to disguise it to be as if it is an honest software, something that is legitimate. So when, once they transform TargetEye to a kind of uh, innocent-looking software and una- unaware that the user that he is being spied on, that software turned from a legitimate software into malware, into a Trojan horse. And the way it went was that Michael was in charge of developing the software, and Ruth was the one working with private investigators, and she was the one who used all the social engineering tricks and techniques to get the victims of the investigations, the one being spied on, to installed the software on their computers. She sent them the software as email attachments and uh, masquerading as, as if it comes from a friend of the victim, or the, or the, the, the CDs came as if they were menus of uh, restaurants in Israel, etc. So, she was the one who actually did the heavy lifting. She would sometimes call uh, as, an, as a client of the business being spied on to, to ask for something to be installed on the computer. She was the one who did all the social engineering, and she was also the one who did most of the revenge campaign against Amnon, and she was the one who uh, got him to install the same software on his computer. Once the Target TargetEye software was installed on a victim's computer, it sent all the information it gathered to servers on the Internet. The information from Amnon's computer was also sent to these servers. So when the, uh, the police detective went over the CD that Amnon gave them and they saw what was on it, they understood it as a spyware, they followed the route of information to these remote servers And they expected to see their only Amnon's sensitive information, but what what they found there actually shook the whole country. It turned out that the clients of the private investigators were some of the biggest brands and businesses in Israel. We're talking about many different niches and fields in the business world, talking about the HBOs and Verizons and Hershey's of Israel, big, big, big names in Israel who were spying on their rivals. This was, this was not a small-time business espionage thing. This was many of the biggest businesses actually stealing information, sensitive documents, from their rivals. And this, this was the first time something like that happened. And uh, the police investigated... Uh, this affair for six months uh, covertly. And then after six months, in about the middle of 2005, the investigation became public. And Michael and Ruth were arrested in London and extradited to Israel. And the police uh, raided, these are them in the the court, the police raided the the homes and offices of the private investigators. And, uh, and of course, arrested and interrogated many of the C- uh, CEOs and executive managers of all these companies, and this affair, it was called the Trojan Horse affair, made the news in Israel for many, many days with you know the, the most prominent wording in the headline being, "This is an earthquake." Nobody in their right mind believed that such crooked business norms were being developing, developing in um, you know in some of the israel's most respectable companies and of course this was the, this was the first time that the israeli public became aware of the idea of malware of spyware of something like a trojan horse this was a big surprise for everyone so this affair kind of raises an interesting question i think you know almost everybody involved in this affair as you've as I've described them, they weren't your typical criminal, not your stereotypical criminal type. I mean, the Michael, the the Fatih couple were middle-class, well-educated people with successful careers in in the high-tech industry. Many of the private investigators who were involved were actually former senior police officers who knew the law. They knew that it was Illegal to break into somebody's computers to steal information. They still did that. And of course, many of the businessmen and women involved from the business side who ordered the industrial espionage from the private investigators, they were clearly very driven businessmen, but they were not mafia bosses in that sense. So the question that, that rises, how did all these good and talented people get involved in such a very ugly and criminal affair? And I think that there are two possible reasons for this. The first thing is that power corrupts. Remember I told you that this was a kind of a transitional period in, in malware. This is the period when malware graduated to become a real tool. Something that was very, very powerful, something that had real practical and economical impact. And if in the past these private investigators, in order to Get, get their hands on sensitive, the classified information, had to break into offices and steal things from cupboards. Now they could do the same and even get better and much more information while sitting in front of their computers in their offices. So this kind of newfound power was very very tempting and it kind of led them down the slippery slope of doing criminal activity which they should have done better. And I think that this theme of power corrupts is doubly true when we're talking about the Euphrati couple. Because remember, these two, th- two people were sitting in Germany, very far away from Israel, and they had this powerful, powerful tool which we were using to steal information from everybody in Israel, and they were making quite a lot of money out of it, and they, were, they felt invincible since they are not even in Israel. And the fact that they, uh, they they did their petty revenge campaign against Amnon is also telling about this power craze, because they couldn't resist the temptation of, of making Amnon's life miserable. Although it was this petty revenge campaign that actually cost them so dearly, because if they wouldn't, if they could resist that temptation, maybe the whole affair would keep on going for a couple of more years then would make a lot more money they just couldn't resist it and the second possible answer to the question of why all these good and talented people sorry got involved with this ugly affair is that maybe cybercrime feels a bit different than physical crime you know many of the people involved wouldn't even dream of breaking into somebody's home or robbing somebody at gunpoint yet breaking into someone's computer to steal information, somehow it felt better. So maybe this kind of tells us something about the limits of the human mind to kind of make sense of what is going on in virtual reality, in the world of of, the virtual cyber world. So by the end of this affair, uh, Michael Efrati was sentenced to two years in jail. Ruth's wife was sentenced to four years in jail because she was more actively involved with scamming the clients and working with the private investigators. The private investigators themselves suffered heavy punishments as well. Anywhere between half a year and 18 months of jail time, heavy fines, and of course their licenses were revoked. The only people who got relatively unscathed from, got out relatively unscathed from this affair were the CEOs and executive managers of companies. Since the prosecution found it really hard to prove that they were aware of the crimes committed on their behalf. And this Trojan horse affair, I think, is an example, an early example, of how powerful are the software tools that we are using in the modern world in the 21st century. And it's also, I think, an example of how tempting this power can be if we use it for the wrong reason. So this is something that when we are talking about the human place inside of cybersecurity, this is maybe something that we should be thinking about. This, I think, might be the, the blessing and the curse of this brave new world of computers and internet. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Visit our website, malicious.life, to subscribe to our podcast, read full transcripts, and download other episodes. If you'd like to leave me some feedback, suggest a future topic for the show, or just say thanks, you can find me on Twitter at at R-A-N-L-E-V-I if you like the show, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, then visit our website. Again, that's malicious.life, and we'll send you a free t-shirt. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.